actually take a break and go to a different passage. But the passage that we're looking at this, um, this Sunday in particular actually lends itself to considering um, sanctity of human life, celebrating life. Um, one of the things that, of course, the Bible teaches is just how precious every, um, every child is. And it's even becoming more of a reality for our own um, congregation. We started out a little bit of an older um, congregation, and, um, and since then we've had both um, singles and young marrieds come in, and now some of our young marrieds are beginning to have children, which is, um, which is fun too. So when people ask to, about our congregation demographically, I say we go from in utero to about mid-80s. Um, and that's, that's the range we cover, which is, um, which is fun. And so we, we celebrate life at, at wherever that is and whatever that is. And, um, and so what I hope is we're going to continue with our Galatians series this morning. Um, but what you'll see is that the things that we believe, um, the things that we advocate for, what we do in culture, the conversations that we have, um, isn't just that we believe that there's salvation in Jesus and then over here is a political agenda that we're supposed to have, um, but our theology leads us to love and to care about certain things, and that leads us to have certain conversations, um, to, to care deeply and sometimes have pointed and strong conversations, but also to allow for the grace and healing of God. And so as we mentioned um, the word um, abortion, it is, um, it is, a, it is a, a, a terrible thing, um, and there are very few families that haven't been affected by it. Um, and so women who maybe had abortions or men that have been in relationships with women who've had abortions. And so um, the important thing um, to hear, if that's where you are, and that's a painful topic, that there is healing and grace in the Lord Jesus, um, that there is, there is forgiveness. Um, I have met few people who are under such a weight of condemnation and shame um, as women who've been through abortions or men who've been a part of those relationships and decisions. And so um, there is a way to find release and forgiveness from shame, um, and that's an important part of our gospel testimony. And so that's where you are. Um, I hope that, um, that you'll hear that message this morning. Um, and even if that's not where you are and this is all new to you, you'll run into folks in our culture um, who are struggling deeply um, in these issues. And so I um, would love for you to um, to learn this morning a little bit of how you can um, enter into hard relationships and care for hurting people, um, and especially young women um, who are trying to make those decisions. So if you hear um, nothing else about getting involved, please know that um, in Culpeper we have the Pregnancy Center, which is an amazing ministry led by Lindy DeMeo. One of the first things I did when I got to Culpeper was set up a meeting with her um, and said, we're about to start a church plant, and we want our church plant to love your ministry. Um, and to support your ministry. And so sat down with Lindy, um, and we email several times a year trying to figure out um, ways that we can work together. Um, there's also Young Lives, and um, Young Lives is a ministry of young life um, that seeks to minister to and help um, high school um, girls that are pregnant. And so um, I know Cherie's involved with that, and I know Will Orr is involved with that in the back. So um, those are easy next steps um, to get um, involved in, um, in those things. And so um, that's my, my introduction to this. We're about to go into a passage to let you pick up, to, to let you know where we're going and where we have been in the book of Galatians. What's happened is that Paul was able to participate in the planting of a church in Galatia. And after Paul left, um, some Jews came in and said, yeah, 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 Jesus is awesome and great and all. And yeah, salvation through him. Um, but if you don't work really hard and do all the stuff that Moses said, then you really can't be a Christian. You at least can't be a Christian um, in a way God's going to be happy with you. You're kind of JV or rookie league if you're not doing um, Moses law stuff. Um, and Paul wasn't just saying, eh, that's a little bit off. We need to correct that. He was saying, that undermines the gospel that I preach. 
Um, if we allow that to continue, it will destroy um, the whole thing. Or that has immediate engagement for us is as Christians who walk in this world, it's very easy for us, it's very easy for others within Christianity to begin to try to persuade us um, that, again, that God's acceptance of us is based on our works. Um, where I've seen it happen most in American evangelicalism is actually in thing, works of personal piety. So the way you study the Bible, the reading plans that you do, the prayers you do, the devotionals that you read, the chicken soup for your soul, the blogs that send you emails every morning, that um, people tend to think, if I do those things, I'm right before the Lord. And if I don't, he has arms crossed, shaking fingers somewhere um, very far off. It's been different things for different generations. So I think for us, though, in terms of personal piety, it's the easiest way to guilt a Christian. Um, I always say, nobody's ever come to me and said, hey, listen, I have a stellar prayer life. Prayer's really going great for me. Um, I'm on top of that. I really need to look at another area. I can just mention prayer, and people just feel like, oh, I just don't pray enough. Um, and people think, well, God, God would really like me more if I was able to have a more consistent prayer life. And that's how subtle legalism works its way into Christianity and robs you of the joy that there is in Jesus. There are other ways. It might not be for you through personal piety. Maybe for you, it's getting involved in things like um, you know, the, the pro-life movement. Maybe it's you working in soup kitchens. Maybe it's you, it's missionary work, and um, you just don't feel like you're doing enough in different countries to, um, to going on short-term mission trips or um, earning enough money to support missionaries. Whatever it is for you, I'm, I'm telling you there is a subtle creep within Christianity um, that tends to push us towards justifying ourselves by our own works of writing our own spiritual resumes rather than depending on the finished resume of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what it ends up doing is actually robbing us of the things that we would want from those things. So if you allow subtle legalism, subtle works come in, you'll be more of a sad Christian in your personal piety. You'll be less effective in your engagement in culture. You'll want to share the gospel less and you'll want to participate in missions less um, because guilt always robs you. Um, of joy and action. So my hope this morning as we look at this passage is that you would be enabled and encouraged to live life as a joyful Christian. Um, and in the end, we're going to look at how this passage particularly relates to um, sanctity of human life. And so that's my preface as, as we work our way through this. Um, I'm going to read verses 15 to 18 of Galatians 3. Remember Paul's arguing and he's making an argument from the Old Testament. And so this is a biblical argument that he's making um, on what the gospel is. Um, and so he'll say in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void for if the inheritance comes by law it is no longer comes by promise but God gave it to Abraham by um, a promise so before we dive into that passage and um, I have the privilege of teaching it why don't we pray before we consider it this morning father um, you've given us your word and it is to your word that we go back we are not looking for ecstatic experiences we're not trying to wander out into the woods in the hopes that you would speak to us we're not going to put our heads on our pillows tonight and hope that you show up in a dream that we might have wisdom for our life you have given us the bible your word which exalts your son christ it is sure and it is trustworthy and so we come to that word this morning to study it as a local church family 
a faith family. And so would you help us, Father, the things that are of you, let us remember. The things that are not, let us quickly forget. Father, none of us leaves um, worship um, unchanged. We would hope for softening and not for hardening of our hearts. For that to happen, we need your spirit. And so we pray in Christ for that spirit. Amen. So as you dive into this passage, a quick um, three points in this. I want you to see the the Christ of the covenant. Um, Next, I want you to see Paul's making a time argument for why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And then he's going to make a principled argument of why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, um, and Christ alone. And so um, we come first to the Christ of um, the covenant. Um, you probably recognize that by our name, um, Christ Covenant. Um, we actually were not very theological in the way that we thought about our name and, um, and chose it. I actually surveyed people by email on um, what they thought um, it was, and I threw out a few options, and um, one of the options was, um, was Northside. Um, Presbyterian Church, because I wanted to see us plant um, other churches throughout the counties around, and we would kind of see ourselves on the north side, and um, the response back was, um, you know, this is a southern um, time. We don't want north in our name at all, and so some people (laughs) nixed that, Um, and then um, the the second name um, was that we would be New City Presbyterian Church, because if you're familiar with the Bible, um, it starts in the garden and ends in a new city, um, a new city of God created by the people of God, held together by, uh, by God's Christ, and so I thought New City, and people said, no, 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 this is Culpeper, we are an old town, we are not a new city. And so they nixed that too. Um, and I had been a part of a church in the past. I was an intern at a church in Charlotte, Christ Covenant. I threw that out as like third option, thinking the first two were really biblical and awesome and missional. And, um, and so we ended up settling on that. And so it was really just a third option. Um, but they're great words and key words within the Bible to think about Christ and covenant. Um, they're words that we don't use as much anymore, but words that Paul's using here. And the simple definition of covenant or covenant theology is that the way that God has chosen to relate to his creation is in terms of covenant, an irrevocable agreement set up by God. So if you want to know, how do I know about God and his relation to us, the word that God goes to first is covenant. You'll see it mentioned here as promise. You'll see sometimes Paul talk about the different benefits and say promise says, um, but it all means the same thing. And as you'll see here, that those promises all all culminate in that covenant culminates in Christ. And so that's what you're going to see first. You're going to see Paul making an illustration. He was a good teacher. Um, He wasn't just highfalutin theology way out there in the ivory tower. He brought in man-made examples and illustrations. And so he's bringing in an illustration here. You'll see him begin with that in verse 17. He says, to give a human example, um, brothers. And he talks about human covenants. The way that we can look at that in terms of illustrations is in terms of mortgages. Um, Think of this illustration. You know, you, you want to buy a house, Um, you get a mortgage. And um, as you know, if you've ever um, had a mortgage or bought a house, there's that big stack of paperwork um, and all the different signatures that you have to sign um, in order to basically say, um, yes, I will pay you bank every month. And yes, bank, you will front these funds on the front end um, so that I can purchase this house. And if I don't, then you get my house um, in the end. There's a covenant in agreement um, the bank um, and, um, and I own the house that I live in, and we have an agreement where I'm not waking up each morning wondering, well, I think the bank's going to come in and decide, but it's different. If I got a letter from BB&T next month, and they said, all right, listen, um, we've decided to charge you an extra $1,000 a month. Um, you know, I wouldn't be like, oh, okay, 
I mean, I guess that's your, that's your prerogative. I said, no, remember that big stack of paperwork that I signed? That said, you can't do that. Phone calls, angry phone calls, all kinds of stuff if that, if that decided to happen. And if I went to the bank and said, hey, yeah, um, I decided I'm not going to pay my, um, my mortgage payment every month, and I decided you should just give me the house, and we're just done. You know, angry phone calls from the bank, and no, no, remember that big stack of paperwork? And Paul's making the same argument here. And, and even man-made agreements, once something is set and signed, you don't get to annul it or add to it later on. There may be some things that change, but the things that change don't change the original agreement that was established. And so Paul's making what we call a lesser to greater argument. If that's the way it works with you and your mortgage company, then how much more is that going to work between you and God and the agreements that he's set up? And so he moves from that argument there in um, verse 15. He moves into 16 which is for him a parenthesis, but um, a pretty significant passage where he quotes from Galatians um, 17, 8. And if you're familiar with Galatians, I mean Galatians, I'm getting my G's mixed up. Genesis 17, 8. Y'all are thinking there aren't that many chapters in Galatians. Um, there aren't, but in Genesis there are. And so he quotes from Genesis 17, 8, first book of the Bible written by Moses, where Moses talks about Abraham, um, the progenitor of our faith. And there are three significant chapters in Genesis that talk about Abraham, chapters 12 and 15 and 17. And all three of those chapters, this covenant comes into play where God says, listen, Abraham, I am just going to, like we would say, bless your socks off. I am just going to pull up the dump, dump truck load of blessing, and I am just going to pour it out on you. There's nothing you have to do. I'm simply just making a promise to you that I'm going to bless you and your kids after you. You're going to have a land. You're going to be a people. Kings are going to come from you. The world's going to be blessed through you. And Abraham's sitting there saying, okay, listen, um, my wife's barren. You called me out of Ur or Chaldea, and I'm wandering. You know, I'm like the guy on the AT trail just wandering around. Like, I don't have a land. I don't have kids. I don't have a nation. What in the world? And God keeps saying, I promise. I promise. I am going to do this for you. And so he sets up what we call sometimes in theology the covenant of grace. The reason it's called the covenant of grace is because it's based on God's grace. Sometimes in older versions of, that, of, the, of theology, they call it the covenant of life. And that's because the benefit you get from it is life. God's promised life to the full, and he's promised it upon the terms of grace. It is simply by faith. And so it'll say in Genesis 15 that, that Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him um, as righteousness. That Abraham simply had a God-given faith, and God declared him righteous before him, approved of and loved, not based on what Abraham did. And if you want to go back and read, um, I mean, Abraham and his life, he made a lot of mistakes, I mean, he walked into a place and said, listen, um, you know, Sarah, you're really gorgeous. I mean, I love you, sweetie. So beautiful. Um, but you're so beautiful um, that somebody might kill me um, in order to marry you. And so we're just going to call each other brother and sister when we go in, you know, to this new place. And you can imagine, ladies, that probably wouldn't go so well. Um, you know, we're going to the restaurant, sweetie. Guys might come up and, and, and hit on you. And so when we go into the restaurant, we're brother-sister. 
That's, that's not so good um, in terms of Abraham and his trust in God to protect him and to use him. And so really the whole book of Genesis um, reads that way. If, if you come from a, a, a dysfunctional family, you know, y'all put the fun back in dysfunctional. Like um, Genesis is your book. I mean, you read all the way through just a bunch of really messed up people with really hard things going on in their families, making really poor decisions that lead to some really bad consequences. And the main character is just this God who is just overwhelmingly gracious and just decides to bless this motley bunch of messed up people. And that's the story of Genesis from front to back. And here, Paul is talking about that. Listen, God made a promise. Um, and that promise wasn't to offsprings um, in, uh, in plural. And so, in, so for example, as, as you probably know, um, in English, um, some of our words um, work this way. In fact, the word um, used in Genesis works that way, seed. So, for example, if I say, there, grass seed, am I talking about a plural, fescue, grass seed, or am I talking about a bag of grass seed? Well, you don't know. Context will have to tell you. We have other words in the English language where um, the singular and the plural are the same. Well, it just so happens that offspring is the same in Genesis. And so the thought is, well, Abraham's going to be blessed by his offspring, plural, by the faithfulness of this bunch of people that are going to have their act together and they're going to do all these things and the covenant's going to be established with them. God's going to look at this bunch of people and say, good job. Y'all have done such a great job as a people. Yes, my covenant is firm. All of my blessings come to you. Except when you read the whole Old Testament, it's one long history of those people messing up over and over and over again. And God coming to them and saying, listen, gracious God, repent. They say, oh, you are a gracious God. We repent. We're going to try so much harder now, and we're going to get our stuff together. And it just doesn't happen. And so the Old Testament ends rather discouragingly, but in the same way Genesis does. The failure of people and the abundant grace of God Almighty. And so Paul goes back and says, the promise isn't secured by the faithfulness of offspring, plural, of the nation of Israel, or even a select bunch of nation of Israel, who you might say, or like varsity team in Israel. No, it was one. He was talking about one offspring. He's making a grammatical argument from context. Paul's looking back and said, that promise to Abraham was secured by a single offspring, a single child, and that child was Christ. So when God made the promise to Abraham, that promise would come, come true in the Jesus to be born thousands of years later, and that Jesus' faithfulness that Jesus' ability to hold it together, that Jesus' ability to perform God's law in full and then even to die for the failings and sins of the people that he would bring to his father by faith, which is why we have these fun conversations on the floor of Presbytery. Presbytery next week, um, part of what I get to do um, is examine guys for ministry, um, which is really intimidating in our, in our denomination. Guys will write like 60 pages of written theology and then they'll be examined for two hours in oral in a committee, just us examining the guy and peppering him with questions. And then after that, he goes to Presbytery where every pastor um, in the Presbytery gathers together and he has to stand and be orally examined in front of Presbytery where not only our committee can give him questions, but anyone can ask any question from the floor. 
um, very intimidating. It's like a fraternity hazing process. Um, and so I'm the guy on the credentials committee, and um, I get to ask the questions now, which is great. Uh, it wasn't so good on the other side of the, other side of the table. Um, but one of the questions we ask is, who are the members of the covenant of grace? If the covenant is an agreement, between whom is the agreement? Who has set the stipulations and who fulfills them? Well, according to Paul in Galatians, God set the promise and the seed, Jesus the Christ, fulfilled the stipulations of the promise. So that we talk about that agreement is between God and Christ, that God said you will perform in full the law for your people and you will bear their punishment so that I can pour out abundant blessing upon them. And the Father would say to Christ, I agree to receive your performance of the law in full on their behalf and I agree to pour out all of my wrath and punishment for those people upon you. And so the people who made the agreement were Jesus and God, and we get all the good stuff. We get all the blessings. And Paul makes that argument here that from Abraham, very early on, that that was always God's intention, and that was always God's way of doing business with his people. And that's why it's so encouraging for us. When it comes to satisfying the need and the stipulations of earning God's blessing, it's already been done through Christ because he was the singular offspring. You're not included in that number. What good news? You're not included in that number. Nothing you can do, nothing we can do as a church can commend us to God because there was that one child that was born, that one single offspring that got it done. And so that was his, that's, his, that's his first argument, that the covenant is fulfilled in Christ. You see that clearly taught here. Um, go with your um, follow-up later, your footnotes, and check out some of those verses in Genesis 15 and 17 um, if you want to know. Second argument that he makes is that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, because of a time argument. And so here's the question. If you were to say, who is the biggest person of the Old Testament... Um, who set out the most things about Christian living before you heard the sermon, um, you would probably say Moses. I mean, Moses wrote the first five of the books of the Bible. Moses wrote the section about Abraham that I just referenced. And Moses had a pretty big hand in receiving the Ten Commandments and setting out the nation state of Israel, the theocracy that would exist um, for however many hundred years until it was um, destroyed and then reestablished. Um, after both the Assyrian and Babylonian exile. And so Moses could take the preeminent spot within the Old Testament for you, and you could begin to think, because Moses received the law, that somehow, yeah, nice God, Abraham, but then the law came, and now things are different. Now the law's here, the Ten Commandments are here. Now what we're dealing with is that God has now dropped the other shoe, and now it's based on what you do. If you don't obey the Ten Commandments, you're in a whole bunch of trouble. And Paul's saying, that's dumb. That's really dumb when you think about the Bible because Moses came 430 years after Abraham. 
430 years past from that covenant that was ratified with Abraham, how then could Moses annul or ratify it? If your mortgage company can't come to you and add a few more hundred bucks every month to your mortgage payment, how could Moses change a covenant of God? Obviously, it wasn't changed. And even when Moses gave the Ten Commandments a clear explanation of the biblical ethic and morality, that that did not then mean that people are made right before God by the performance of a law about being moral or doing your quiet time. Because it was always based in God's promise because the promise came first. If Moses came first and then Abraham we might have reason to think that the Bible taught something else. And remember, here Paul is arguing against Jews. He's using their text. We're a people of the word. And so when we have questions, we come back to the Bible. We debate here on what needs to happen. And that's what he's arguing. From a time standpoint, the promise stays in. And this is where it's important for us because we do the same thing. We always want to backdoor into that and say, yes, there were these glorious days of back when I was in college and I lived by grace and faith, but now I've seen so much of my sin and now I just need to get my act together. Or one of my favorite ones, and I don't think anybody said this recently, and so um, I can use it and not offend any of you. When people come to the church and say, oh, well, um, I've had kids now and, um, and I really just need to make sure my kids learn religion, and so I'm, I'm coming to your church. Saying, I was fine before that, but now I've got to do some work um, in order to get this faith thing established so that my kids end up okay. We constantly do that. We constantly, in our own hearts, want to pit an Abraham against a Moses. It was all by grace and faith, and God loved me and forgave all my sins, but now it's different. Now I've done the thing I said that I would never do. Now I'm reaching midlife and having whatever crisis comes with that. And now I realize I just need to buckle down. And here in this passage, Paul has preserved the truth of the gospel and said it's always by grace. It's by grace when you start out. It's by grace when you end. It's by grace when you don't have any kids and you have no idea what you're doing. And it's by grace when you have kids and realize you still don't know what you're doing. It's by grace when you're in college. It's by grace when you're in emptiness. It's by grace when you're eight. It's by grace when you're 80. It's by grace if you have a diligent, robust system for studying the Bible. And it's by grace if you wake up and you don't that morning. It has always been by grace, by a time argument. Your righteousness and standing before God was established in the promise of Abraham that was fulfilled in Jesus. So that's the second argument that he makes. The third argument um, that he makes is a principled argument. He says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on this principle. And here's the question. Can you earn an inheritance and it still be called an inheritance? Or do you have to call it something else? Can you earn an inheritance and it still be called an inheritance, or do you have to call it something else? Later on, Paul will say, if you earn something, we better just go ahead and call it wages. Because you earn wages and you're given a gift, and we can't earn a gift and we can't gift wages. We've got to decide which one of these things it is. But he makes that argument there in verse 18 of, listen, if it's a promise and it's an inheritance that you've received, then your works don't have anything to do with it, or it's no longer inheritance and a promise. I love um, Tim Keller's book on, um, on, called Prodigal God, where he looks at the parable of the prodigal 
um, son, we might say sons, um, or we might even say the, the prodigal father. Prodigal means lavish spending. So if anybody's really lavish in that story, it's the father with his grace and blessings. But if you remember the story, we tend to highlight how offensive it must have been for that first son to come and say, Dad, I would really like my inheritance now. I know you're not dead yet, um, but if you could just split it up and give it to me because Vegas is calling, um, and I'd really like to answer, but I don't have the funds for that. And so in effect, he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could get your stuff and go and party with my friends. So we think, oh, that's horrible. That's awful. And it kind of was. But he came around. Older son, we tend to let off the hook a little bit. But his was equally offensive. Older son, after the younger son comes back, dad forgives him. Beautiful story of grace. You know, younger son's preparing the I'm sorry speech. Dad loves him so much. Cuts off the I'm sorry speech. Robe, ring, fatted calf, party, grace, forgiveness. And then older son, arms crossed. I have served you this many years and you never once killed a fatted calf for me, my friends. I have done all of this for you, and you haven't given me one inkling of that inheritance. You think, after all I've done for you, all of my obedience and faithfulness as the oldest son, that you could spare at least 10%, maybe 5% of your inheritance for me so that I could enjoy that. That's why I'm after. And then his son comes back, and you just lavish even more on him. What's the matter with you? equally if not more offensive because he was dealing with the father's inheritance based on his work. He was saying, Dad, everything that you've promised to give me just because I'm your son and you love me, I'm going to try and earn and you owe it to me. You were obligated to give it to me. And at that moment, the older son is demanding wages, not an inheritance, not a promise, He's not coming because he believes his father is loving and gracious and beneficent and just loves to lavish good stuff on him. He's coming with a transactional request and his own knowledge or thought that he has earned some of it. So it's no longer an inheritance. And the scary thing about that story is that we never hear what happened to the older son. The younger son comes into the party, reconciled with the father, living lavishly in the father's grace older son we never, fall, we never find out about should scare us and give us a moment of, of reflection ourselves and we're prone to approach God that way and here Paul's saying listen if God said it's a promise and inheritance in the beginning you can't earn it and as soon as you think you've earned it it's no longer a promise and inheritance and it's not biblical salvation you were saved by God's grace alone and Paul protects there because he knows that the human heart will always try to go to God and earn something. And so he has cut off every route for you. Those moments that you think you have it all together and you're doing a really good job and you're kind of doing all the stuff and you're earning God's grace, they're going to feel kind of empty. And those moments when you feel like you finally hit rock bottom and you're still looking for a shovel because you don't believe it, and you think there's something even lower than that, God's grace is going to be so beautiful and lavish to you because he has cut off every route for us to believe that the good things he gives us are based on our works. They're based on the finished work of the covenant keeper. 
Christ, the offspring that was given for us. And he's done that to preserve for you a salvation that is, has been, and always will be by grace through faith in Christ. And so if you're a Christian this morning, it's an encouragement for you to remember again, your heart will always do that. You will want to earn it. You will want to say it was grace, but now it's works. And here you have the Apostle Paul speaking to the Galatians saying, silly, foolish Christ covenant. If you started by grace, if you started by faith in Christ, why are you now trying to continue with your works? If it was the Holy Spirit of God given to you by gift that has bound you to him and made Christ beautiful and grown you, why do you now think you're being grown by your own efforts and diligence and Excel sheets and to-do lists? It was always by faith and the Spirit, and it always will be by faith and the Spirit. And the faith in the Spirit may lead you to more robust, more rich, more diligent um, pursuit of God's kingdom and his glory than you ever could have with guilting yourself. It may lead you somewhere else, but it is always by God's grace and faith in Christ. And if you're not a Christian, it means that the offer is here. It doesn't mean that you need to go home and you need to kind of figure out how am I going to clean myself up to fit in at Christ's covenant. Um, we're all pretty messy people anyway. Um, stick around long enough and you'll get to know that. It means that there is no point in time where a, someone who is not a Christian hears the gospel message, wants to respond. There is no reason that they cannot. There is no prep work. There is no study work. There's nothing to go and do. It means at the point that the gospel is offered as freedom from sin, as a chance to repent and know the love of your Father, you can respond there and immediately. And so if that's you, why wait? Why misunderstand the gospel? There's always a free offer. It should always be responded to immediately. Now let's spin back around and let me show you how that basic gospel teaching um, engages with how we think about sanctity of human life Sunday. What I would usually say on Sundays like this is I would work back to creation. I'd say God has made all people in his own image, and so every person is worthy of dignity and protection and has a right to life, and that is true. It's an argument from creation. We were all created that way, and so I not only would want to defend the life of the unborn, but defend the life of anyone whose life is threatened, and it's especially true of children in their mother's womb should be the most safe place in the world. Um, so that's an argument from creation. But did you see, the, see what happened here this morning? Do you see the covenant of grace? Out of all of the ways that God could have worked, out of all of the ways he could have brought the gospel, out of all the ways the Messiah could have come into the world, it was through a promised child. Not an immediate child, but a promised child. So that every time a mother was pregnant in Israel, they were reminded of the covenant-saving promises of God. Every time you saw a baby bump, you were reminded again that God was gracious and had made outrageous promises based on only his willingness and love to bless. And even though that Messiah has now come, still we look on pregnancy. We look on children within their mother's womb. We look on children outside of their mother's womb. And we rejoice, not just because we love kids and they're cute most of the time, <laughs> but because the way that God chose to save us includes single child of promise includes a mother's womb, 
And so this issue of abortion and pregnancy and the reason we um, volunteer in pregnancy centers and the reason that we love these things is, is not just because it's a, a moral issue, it is. It isn't just because it's a political issue, it is. It's because it goes to the core of who we are as Christians. We were saved by the promised child. And so we believe every single child is valuable because of the way our ch God chose to save us, not just because of the way he chose to create us. And so if you're wondering for ways to get involved, um, urge you, um, pray, work, and adopt. Let's say. Pray for an end to abortion. Pray for people who've been affected um, by abortion in our country. Pray for counselors at counseling centers. Work, get involved wherever you can. Um, and I think that every person should at least consider adopting um, over the course of their life, probably a few times in their life. I don't think everyone needs to adopt, but I think a lot of people should, and that everyone should at least consider, is that what God has for me? And so I encourage you, if you've never thought about that, um, think about it. Um, so I encourage you at that. And again, if you've been affected by um, abortion and, um, and you feel shame or guilt or people in your family have um, and you don't know what to do, um, would love to get you help and counseling and let you know that there is such grace and forgiveness. And really the only hope I know to get out under that shame and that condemnation um, that comes along with um, that kind of act is through the Lord Jesus Christ who loves, accepts, receives and has forgiven through his cross all the sins of all his people. There is no sin that can hold any Christian away from the Lord God because there is no longer any condemnation in Christ because he is born at all. So I encourage you with that. If that's you, we'd love to talk to you. Um, we'd love to point you in the direction of some really gifted counselors who can, um, who can help you as well. So why don't I pray for us and then we'll sing. Father, we love you. We're thankful for the truthfulness of your word, that from front to back it is trustworthy and reliable, that it shows us as a gospel in which we can believe, and it also shows us 